Welcome back to the 189th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. And today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two tech CEOs going back and forth about AI and the causes it will have on our job markets. A interesting story talking about how some youngsters are totally against Trump and willing to do anything to make sure he doesn't get back into office. And our final article is talking about Mayor Eric Adams and his legal battle going on in NYC. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So normally I do the daily debate around the first story, but I think the second one's a little bit more interesting to ask a question about, which is... Would you intentionally lie to a pollster in order to change the impression that they get from you or their overall impression? Would you tell them something, not necessarily that they want to hear, but information that isn't true just to shift the polls so the sentiment seems different when the information gets out there in the long term? And you may say, oh, well, you know, if I, if I lie, then it's not going to really change anything if everybody else is truthful. But if everybody else has the same mentality as you, sure. But if everybody has the mentality of, hey, we're going to screw with them, then it could. And I don't know if that's what the youth are doing nowadays, but I think it's a genuine concern. And I think some people aren't 100% genuine in telling their absolute opinion when pollsters call, whether that's uh, unconscious bias or you know, completely conscious. So tell me what you think about that situation. Tell me what you would do. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. And let's jump to our first article that comes from Fortune. Alameda CEO Brad Gerstner warns AI will cause the largest displacement of human labor in the history of capitalism. So we know this has been a talking point for some time. And we had Andrew Yang at the very beginning talking about how AI and all these different computer innovations and all these different software innovations are going to leave people out in the cold. And then you have your counterpoints. You have your uh, Andreessen Horowitz folks who are like, well, yes, it will displace a certain amount of people, but there will be new jobs that crop up. I mean, once you have a computer or machine doing something, well, you have to have people who have the technical know-how how to fix that machine. So even though it's taking away old jobs, it's creating new jobs. So there's this back and forth. But this is pretty big. When you have one of the largest, if not the largest, CEOs of one of the largest private equity funds and, well, also a hedge fund, then it, it says something when they put out a prediction. Because they're not just saying something. They're also normally putting their money behind it. They've put money into different innovative processes, products, technologies, and they have a little bit of a glimpse behind the scenes. And also because of their expertise and because they're able to you know, look at where a product is and see its potential, sometimes they have a, a deeper insight. And they also have lots of stock across companies so they could see the interplay between these different technologies and where it could lead. Does it mean that it's going to go down the path they predict? No. But they do have a little bit of insight that we might not have as the public. So I think these claims need to be taken pretty darn seriously. So let's jump to the first quote I got for us here. For those worried about artificial intelligence replacing human workers in the years ahead, recent comments by a prominent technology investor will not assuage their anxiety. 
quote, AI is going to be the largest displacement of human labor in the history of capitalism, said Brad Gerstner, founder and CEO of the investment firm Alameda Capital, on a Monday episode of the Art of Investing podcast. Quote, there's going to be a lot of disruption that will cause a lot of anger. A lot of people will feel left out of the system, end quote. Rather than a scenario in which companies suddenly lay off half of their workforce, however, Gerstner foresees AI gradually affecting employment. And this is the last quote I have directly from him for the podcast at this segment. Quote, it's going to mean the rate of hiring will be much slower at companies than it was for the last 20 years, he said. By way of example, he added, if you have a 50% improvement in your productivity of your engineers and you're growing the top line of your company at, let's say, 20%, you don't need to hire new engineers, end quote. So what he's saying there, and obviously you're, you're, you get it in a practical terms, hey, if you're bringing on new engineers, but you don't actually, you're not growing fast enough to uh, accommodate them, you don't have to bring on new engineers. But in this case, instead of hiring an engineer, hiring a person, you're paying for a piece of software or technology that can do the same job as them. And you're probably going to buy that software for less. Now, it will be actually interesting. Um, I think there will be an interesting play here, which is, these companies that come out with these AI resources, and they're probably going to go with a subscription model like a lot of different business-to-business companies go for now. They don't just sell you a product anymore. They sell you a recurring service so they can get money from you every single month and then you know every year after that, so on and so forth. But if they overvalue themselves and they charge too much at the beginning and the companies will be like, yeah, okay, we're willing to buy into this AI thing. We'll pay you that little bit more. I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to save us a little bit in, in salaries to pay an engineer. But if they oversell it and they go for a high subscription cost, eventually the cost for that service and the amount of work that it can do and so on and so forth, it may not be the same as having an actual engineer. So these AI companies have to be very strategic about how they're doing it. They have to price it just right because if it's too high and they're not getting enough out of it that they could just hire an original, you know, old-fashioned, wow, hate to say humans are old-fashioned, but an old-fashioned engineer to do the work, then companies may opt for that because there are other benefits, which is social cohesion. Maybe they really like the attitude of this person. They also or you know, want to groom them for leadership. You can't really groom AI for leadership, but you can groom a person for leadership. So you could see here that these AI companies, as to they're coming in, have to be very, very smart about it. And let's be clear, they could probably use their AI technology to say, what's the optimal price I should charge for you to these companies? But that's one thing they don't mention in this article, and I wanted to give a little bit of a bright spot. Maybe that's an alternative, or maybe I'm just crazy, and they won't even do that. Maybe they'll just outright sell these you know, technologies to say, hey, this is uh, large language engineer model 5.5. We'll sell them to you for $10,000 with a recurring uh, bug fixing program where we send out one of our technicians and all you have to do is pay for the hours for him to get there, so on and so forth. And then, oh, well, you know, in two years we may have uh, blank, blank, blank product number six and you can get a discount on that. If they go with that model, maybe maybe that's a little bit different because it's actually like a fixed investment rather than a recurring investment that they have to make, like a subscription model. But, you know, we'll see how that one plays out. But he has a point, which is at the end of the day, if you can replace engineers with a software program and you can hire them more easily, you don't have to worry about you know doing the job interview, doing the job search, putting out references, you know, checking everything, and you can just hire or improve 
bring in one of these pieces of technology that can do the exact same job, then you don't have to expand as quickly with your human side resources. And if anything, you can redeploy those resources that would be used for hiring the engineers to hire different occupations that haven't actually been taken over by AI yet. So it, it is interesting. So here's the there's a section called AI impacts on jobs. And, you know, once again, there's a, a few quotes from a few different podcasts that I want to go over very quickly. Quote, my sense is that it's likely to generate jobs. He recently told the Acquired podcast. And this is from Mr. Uh, Huang. I think I, how you pronounce it is Jensen Huang. And he is one of the CEOs or he's the leader of NVIDIA. And he says, like I said, he hopes it will generate jobs. Quote, the first thing that happens with productivity is prosperity. When the companies get more successful, they hire more people because they want to expand into more areas. The co a common line of thinking, said Huang, is that if a company improves productivity with AI, then it will employ fewer people. But that assumes the company will have no new ideas, he noted, and that's not true for most companies, end quote. And while that may be 100% true, I think the criticism or the alternative point of view to that would be yes but those new ideas wouldn't necessarily guarantee the exact same jobs they would create new job opportunities but that doesn't guarantee that the people that are there right now who are in, in the engineering department won't be replaced and that's what a lot of people's fears are i don't think a lot of people's fears overall is the general idea that oh all opportunity is going to be gone we're not going to be able to find jobs anywhere. All human jobs eventually will be taken out. No, for right now, there are technician places. There are more creative things that are not replicating old processes like AIs do. So people have this idea that, yeah, okay, you know, we'll adapt. There, there'll be a change in the overall system. The, I think the more tangible fear comes from the people who are currently in these positions and don't see an alternative that they could easily do even if these new jobs and new opportunities within the company open up. Now, maybe there's a role for some of these engineers to actually work collaboratively with these other uh, programs, these AI softwares that the company is now employing, and that could be a new position for them. But it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. And I know I probably sound like I'm rattling off things like I'm an expert. I'm not. I'm just a normal commentator. But I, I do feel like the general sentiment is not necessarily, oh, my gosh, all the jobs will be gone. I mean, does an AI really want to check you out at Walmart even though Whole Foods is trying really hard? No, they probably don't want to you know, deploy fancy AI systems that they have to upkeep and everything like that. And they make things more vulnerable, you know, subject their data of their customers to more risk rather than just having a cashier but maybe i'm wrong i mean self-checkouts growing pretty big where i am in kentucky i don't know if at one point it felt like it was a labor shortage but now it feels like they're just trying to do it in some almost all the locations and they have cameras on you everywhere it kind of feels like the ccp but that's what happens when we move to an ai area and i wonder if there will be pushback on that one because I've seen on the Walmart cameras, they actually scan your face while you're there. That reminds me of uh, the Chinese Communist Party technology to scan your face, your face when you go everywhere. So, no, this is it, it kind of scares me a little bit. And I wonder if there will be enough pushback there that maybe the Walmarts will go back to having more one-on-one -on -one cashiers, having those people keep people from stealing rather than an elaborate camera system that tracks everything you do. 
I don't know. I guess some people don't value, like, they just don't want to interact with the cashiers anyway, so they'll be happy to do the self-checkout. But for me, I'd rather, you know, go to the cashier. And let's be clear, yes, if the self-checkout's faster, I'm not going to deny that. But if the cashier's quick, I'd love to go have a conversation for a quick minute. But maybe I am just one of those weirdos and everybody else is like, okay, got screaming kids. I just, I need to get through here as quickly as possible. But it's just one of those things where we're starting to value time and efficiency, just like companies are valuing time and efficiency, which, of course, is their prerogative. They're trying to make money. But at what point do we value that more than the human-to-human interaction, the other benefits that come from being able to look into somebody's eyes and share an experience, have a conversation? And, you know, when we become detached and we don't necessarily have that trust between you and the grocer or that trust between uh, another salesperson from another company and yourself, we have to come up with more mechanisms to actually control things like AI and software that tracks everything because you can't have that human-to-human connection, which makes it easier to trust and build a rapport between them. And that's just that's just my opinion. I don't know if it necessarily 100% applies to what is going on here in this article, but it's something that we need to think about because we're running into a, a new era and we need to ask some bigger questions than, hey, what am I going to do? It's how do I want the future of this to play out? And maybe not all of us are in a position, including myself, to actually make a change, but maybe starting these conversations is one way to do it. All right, so let's jump to our second article that comes from Crooks and Liars. Watch out pollsters. Young voters prioritize stopping Trump. And, you know, I think that there's a little bit, there's there's something true here and there's something not true. Uh, Gen Z is one of the most conservative generations, or sorry, I need to take that back. It's not that, oh, okay. Yes, it's actually 50% or 55% conservative. No, it is a larger segment of the population of that generation that is conservative than millennials. And I don't know if that necessarily holds true for Gen Xers, but I do know that we're approaching like baby boomer levels. So do all of these young people really want to prioritize stopping Trump? No, maybe the most vocal and the loudest among them do and the ones that are a little bit more silent or don't care. They're like, okay, no, I'm just going to vote Democrat. I don't really care about stopping Trump or the other ones that are like, I'm just not going to speak up because I actually kind of liked Trump. But I think that this article comes from a little bit of confirmation bias, which is they're looking for people that agree with them about stopping Trump and they're looking for people that are passionate about it. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a really, really loud segment of the population. I've run into a whole bunch of people who don't like Trump, but so much so that they're willing to outright lie and stop him. I like that They're so angry with him that they're never going to let him back into office. I don't, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people in our generation haven't been politically active. They haven't actually been engaged on a truly micro level. They've been engaged on a micro, a macro level. And they'll be say, oh yeah, well I just didn't like the way you talked to people. I didn't like this, I didn't like that. Versus going into the policies and saying, no, I actually hated these certain policies. But then again, you can hate people for superficial things. I just think it's, it's interesting. But the article is obviously going to argue something different. So Let's get into it. Quote, one of the major wildcards 2024 will be whether Gen Z voters who have turned out in historic levels over the last several election cycles will show up again and, importantly, vote predominantly for President Joe Biden. 
As Democratic pollster Celinda Lake pointed out in July, even if even in the event of a 2024 Biden-Trump rematch, the race will be transformed by the entrance of roughly 16 million newly eligible Gen Z voters aging into the electorate since 2020, while roughly 10 million older voters simultaneously age out, so to speak. The Progressive Consortium Navigator Research honed in on these voters in a series of new focus groups consisting of young Democratic women of color in Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Texas, as well as young independents and Republicans from across the country who remain undecided about their vote. And so if you're going for young Democratic women of color, yes, they're going to be passionate and they're going to be out there against Trump, no doubt, because of the accusations of racism, of sexism, and also, they're Democratic, meaning they probably watch one perspective. So, yes, they will be out there against Trump. As well as young independents. Uh, young independents, a lot of them just don't like the political division. They're probably, they don't like Trump because of his loud-mouthedness and his unwillingness to just be normal at some points. I could see that argument. I could also see the argument that he cut more regulations than most other people and most other presidents, for every one regulation he put in, he kind of had a standing rule where he's going to cut two. That can appeal to some independents, some libertarians. So maybe that's a card, uh, you know, a straw in his hat. And for Republicans, I could see why a certain segment of the younger Republicans who are passionate about uh, different issues would say, hey, you don't actually go far enough, Trump. You're kind of a New York Republican, and I'm still going to vote for you, but I'm not necessarily happy with you. And then the rest of those young Republicans, they probably grew up during the Trump time. So their whole political life is defined by Trump. So they're probably not going to hate him too much. So I can see how this is going to break down already just by who's included in it. You can kind of get some sentiment as to what's going to be said. And I'm going to read you a few quotes from what some of these women and some of these other people said in a focus group in a few different areas. So this is the first focus group. Young voters of all partisan stripes are skeptical about the economy and the direction of the country, but they still view voting as a civic duty, even if they're not enthusiastic about their choices. So this is between Biden and Trump, obviously. Quote, a Democratic woman in Nevada said, quote, I think that every vote counts. Every single person, it all adds up. Just like every penny counts to make up a dollar. I feel like every single person votes count. And there's another one that comes from an independent man. Voting is super important to me. I vote in the primaries, local elections, midterms, all of it. Because I can make any kind of effect. Even though a lot of the times it feels like it's fruitless, he says. So you're probably like, wait, Alex, why are you, why are you reading out these focus group results? Why are you telling us this? Because... These are, one, important to understanding how some of the people view the upcoming election, even if they don't like it. And I'm not saying that young people are politically cynical, but some, some young people really are. They don't like the political system. They think it's broken, that it needs to be fixed through external methods or it can be fixed through internal methods. And normally this leads to a lot of young people not voting because they feel like certain people don't speak to the issues that they care about. And the reason this one is important is because it's showing that our generation, or I'm sorry, my generation, doesn't mean everybody's listening is my age, my generation is very civically engaged. Not everybody. Let's be clear. I've met a lot of people. I would say even 55% of people that I've met during the course of my job and over the last few years 
don't actually think about voting until either the last second or they're told to do so. And the other 45%, they're, they're pretty engaged. But does that mean that they actually go out there and vote? Sometimes they protest vote because they are so engaged. They're like, okay, neither of these people settle with me. I don't even like that third-party candidate, Jill Stein. I, I'm just not going to go out there. They're not speaking to me. So just because students or people in our generation are engaged, that also doesn't mean they go out and vote. So I think it's nice when you see these sort of comments like, hey, there are civic minded young people who are willing to put aside that extra hour. All it is is an extra hour and go out to the voting location or send in an absentee ballot if they're at school and they didn't register at school. And it shows that, hey, this group is going to be impactful. They care. Not every single one of them. I would say 25% of this generation cares enough to go out there and vote during all the elections. And they actually will vote for one of the mainstream and not do a protest vote. I would say it's probably about 35 that would go out and vote at all. And it's about, like I said, 45 that they're engaged, but that doesn't necessarily mean everybody in that group is voting, but a majority of them would. And then the rest are just like, I really, I don't care. I don't see how it affects me. I got, you know, I got my boyfriend troubles. I got my girlfriend troubles. I got a exam coming up. I have midterms. Oh, I'm about to get it off for Thanksgiving break. Do I really want to worry about voting? I just got to make it through these last few classes. So this generation is going to be huge. And it's nice to see that we are civically minded and going in. But what does the civic mindedness actually going to affect? So what do the people that are actually voting think? So they have another focus group that does a breakdown. Well, actually, let me just read you the criteria. While the idea of a 2024 Biden-Trump rematch frustrates many young Americans, Democratic women of color were particularly galvanized against Trump. Once again, as I highlighted earlier, not surprising whatsoever. Quote, anybody but Trump. They could put a dog in. I will pick the dog, said one Democratic woman of color in Pennsylvania. If Trump wins the election, I think I would personally suck. It would suck from my standpoint and seeing or experiencing Trump as a pe president for another four years, said another Democratic woman of color in Texas. I don't think that Donald Trump should be allowed to run again, replied a Democratic woman of color in Nevada. I definitely feel like he brought out a out racism a lot more said a democratic woman of color in nevada i know it's always been a big thing but as soon as he got elected it's just so ugly so i feel that this is the one thing that definitely will get way worse if he comes back as well as the immigration stuff that he's trying to do that would negatively impact my family for sure so <laughs> you can see here those you know that segment of the population they are not liking donald trump whatsoever and they i mean hey They've been the narrative has been fed over time. He has said some things that if you don't, you know, have a joking bone in your body or no, that that's even cruel to them. If you're not willing to give somebody a break on those things, if they personally touch you and affect you and anger you, of course, you're going to have a sentiment against him on that one. I am not a black woman of color, so I can't even begin to understand how the feeling of hearing certain things like, you know, his comments about the opposite sex or his comments about other people in general affect those people whatsoever. But I can tell you now, you know, it's going to affect a certain segment of the population. There's going to be a visceral reaction, whether or not his, any of his policies actually had a racist effect, any or any of his policies actually had a sexist effect or any of the things he did hurt any of those groups just purely based on visceral reaction. It's going to hurt him. And that has always been Donald Trump's biggest weakness. He can't keep his dang mouth shut. 
Now, is anything going to change? No. We've seen him out there on the campaign trail. He's still saying outrageous things. Honestly, I'm pretty sure he says outrageous things, so the media will cover it so he gets more attention. But, you know, it seems to still be working because some media outlets are still giving the attention giving him the attention he wants but you have seen less coverage of his rallies which i think is a genuine intention by people in ma the mainstream to say okay we need to move on from trump we need to stop relying on his ratings so much and we need to stop giving him free advertisement basically it seems that maybe they've eventually learned their lesson about this one but talking about someone who hasn't learned their lesson we're going to go to mr eric adams of new york this headline comes from Politico. Adams starts legal defense fund amid probe of NYC campaign. So for those of you that don't know, there's this whole debacle where Eric Adams was, you know, given a helping hand to some of the Turkish, uh, how should I say it, Turkish firms, uh, the Turkish government in order to set up a building or, you know, to make it a little bit easier to get their building open in New York. And also there just happened to be a little bit of Turkish money that found its way into his campaign fund. That's the allegation. And there's there's an idea here that maybe there's something going on here. I'm not saying that it's foreign money either because I'm pretty sure just like on the national level that is illegal on a, you know, citywide level or even a state level. But, you know, Turkish, Turkish interested parties that are located here in the United States. Let's put it that way. So what is Eric Adams doing? What is this legal defense front? Quote, the Eric Adams Legal Defense Trust is necessitated by and intended to defray legal expenses in connection with inquiries by the Office of the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York related to the operations of the Eric Adams 2021 Mayoral Campaign Committee. Reads a signed affidavit David from a Adams dated Wednesday. Adams will be able to take donations up to $5,000 per the law and will have to report the names and addresses of contributors giving $100 to the Conflict of Interest Board each quarter. Adams' first report will be due January 15th, but not everybody can give. The law bars Adams' subordinates and government from donating as well as anyone doing business in the city, which means if it's a Turkish affiliate in the city that was giving him the money, which we're, it's still coming out, then they couldn't actually provide any of the legal defense funds in order to get him off of it so they don't get dragged into it, which is a very important wrinkle here. And the reason I wanted to show this one is because, one, we still have effective mechanisms in place. We still, even though Eric Adams is going through something that, you know, we don't want to see any mayor of New York have to go through. We don't want to see anything like this prop up, even though it's due to possibly, allegedly, his own corruption. He still has the right to defend himself. He still has the right to garner money, but there are still checks and balances in place, and the this is alleged corruption, and yet the system around the man, the system around this alleged corruption seems to be functioning in a way that is actually meant to tear down this sort of bad and unfair play, even if it takes a little bit of time after the fact to figure out what is going on. And I just think that it should show that even though some things can get by in America, and I'm cynical, I do believe there is you know, open corruption in some cases out there, it still shows that the legal system 
can work in the favor of the average person, can work in the favor of anybody. And as long as there's a legitimate grievance where somebody has been harmed or where somebody has been taken advantage of or someone has been lied to and frauded out of something like the representation they want and deserve in their city or even when the big boys use their power to benefit themselves, the system can still work. The checks and balances are still there. We just have to be willing to actually put pressure on the people who need to apply these laws, who need to apply these different regulations that are on the books, and say to them, no, you're not getting away with this. We want fair treatment underneath the law, and this is how it's going to play out because this democracy, this republic, is built on the backs of our goodwill. And if you don't have it, then at the end of the day, you're not serving us. And when you're not serving us and you're f serving your own interests rather than ours, it's a form of hypocrisy, oligarchy, whatever you want to call it, whatever term you want to put out there. But you're not serving our interests, so get out. We're going to enforce the laws that are in place to keep people from you, like exploiting us and our goodwill. And, in this case, maybe some of our taxpayer dollars as well. So... You know, with all that out of the way, even though that was a yeah, it was a delightful note, you know, inspiration that the system can still work. I want to leave you with even more inspiration. So we're going to go to our daily delight. This one comes from Parade Pets. Polar Bear's elation over being gifted toy balls is the sweetest. Quote, on Wednesday, November 15th, a zoo in England shared an adorable video of their mama polar bear, Hope and her two cubs, Nico and Nori. The clip shows these three polar bears having been gifted some new toys to play with, and the result has been unbelievably cute. And yeah, I mean, it's a blue ball. They're messing around. They're throwing it around. They're just kind of goofing. They're like, I don't know what this is. Why is this thing floating? Why can't I just jump on it and have it sink into the water? No, it pops back up. It's kind of like a toddler or a young person experiencing a new type of toy for the first time. That joy on their face, that a little bit of confusion, but seeing what they can do with it, how much they can play around with it. We'll see how long it lasts. Quote, for animal lovers, this is a must-see video. The level of cuteness is hard to find anywhere else, so you don't want to miss out. End quote. And if you do want to check out that cute video or see any of the cute photos, you can check in the links in the description below this like and subscribe button. Also down there are all the articles from today's podcast. Also in the description is the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. Yes, I'm aware Google Podcasts is going away, but for now, it is still up there. And also the link to the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. A little bit less scripted, not too many quotes, just kind of off the top of the head ranting, which is basically what most of these podcasts are anyway, but in a shorter form. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.